0: Our second reading is from Luke's Gospel. It's uh, chapter 7 and we read from verse 1 to verse 23. After Jesus had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now, a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, He sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, Do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, therefore I did not presume to come to you. But say the word, and let my servant be healed, for I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Soon afterwards, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread, through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me.
1: Our Father, we pray that as we study these passages in Luke's gospel, we would apprehend the scope and the greatness of salvation that are ours through Christ Jesus. If our view of what we have been saved for is too small, will you enlarge it? If our view of the savior is too small, will you enlarge our affections and our love for him? And if we are not yet saved, help us to understand the glorious, glorious offer of salvation and to put our trust and faith in Jesus Christ for his sake. Amen. Now, over the next three Sunday mornings, our subject within the wider narrative of Luke, remember Luke is to give us certainty as believers. Our subject over these three Sundays is the greatness of salvation in Jesus. How great is salvation? And certainly for me, as I've pondered these passages uh, while away these past two weeks, it struck me that it's very easy for us to have too narrow a view of salvation, too narrow a view of the extraordinary saving grace of Jesus. Last week on holiday, we climbed a number of Munroes, and it was unusually sunny and clear. And when you're at the top of a Scottish mountain, you simply, you don't simply see, you experience, you apprehend, kind of the wind is on your face, and your legs are sore. The impact of it really gets you. And I began to think about salvation and all that it means. It's one thing to know it in our heads. It's another to experience it, to feel it, to understand it, to allow it to impact and intersect with our emotions, whether inspiration or humility or thrill or joy or fear. That's uh, our focus these uh, weeks. Now, Jesus came, and Luke makes it very clear in this section and a section in chapter 8. Jesus came to save us from… Now, Our answer to that question from earlier in Luke's Gospel, and it's the right answer, Jesus came to save us from our sins. That's right. What Luke is doing here is Jesus came to save us from our sins for, we're on the for now, a world and a life Free of sickness, death, disorder in creation, and evil. Now, I think as a church, we are pretty clear and pretty strong, and rightly so. And let's pray we never lose this emphasis on the priority that is the message of forgiveness of sins because without forgiveness of sins you will not we will not live in a new creation we will live in judgment and the priority on this earth is to proclaim the message of forgiveness that men and women will in humility and in repentance come to jesus for forgiveness But I wonder if we perhaps don't emphasise enough for our own certainty and encouragement and in the message we proclaim what it is in terms of the full scope that Jesus came to save his people for. A world free of sickness, a world free of death, a world free of disorder, a world free of evil. How do we know that he will do that? Well, before our eyes, as we read, these extraordinary eyewitness accounts. Luke, our careful historian recording these eyewitness events, every detail there. It was a a woman from Nain, that little town close to Capernaum. It was that centurion who had helped the Jewish people rebuild the synagogue. His servant. Two unlikely choices. Evidence is so powerful. Healing someone in a house down the road who was sick and dying simply with a word. Interrupting a funeral. Stopping the hearse opening the door, taking the lid off the coffin, touching the body, saying to a dead man, notice how Luke says he was a dead man, not that he passed, it's a dead man, sit up, and he sat up, and he spoke, and Jesus handed him, The boy to his mother. Extraordinary stuff. Now, here in Luke 7, the focus is on Jesus saving from sickness and on death. Later in chapter 8, the focus is on nature. We'd be confronted by that and are confronted by that more and more in our world. Our world really is breaking up. Heat is hotter, cold is colder, floods are greater, fires are stronger. Luke gets to that in chapter 8, and then again on sickness and death. It's funny how it's not funny, it's, it's, it's right in a sense that the gospel records keep coming back to Jesus' authority over sickness and death. 2,000 years on from the ancient world, with manifold advances, are we any less threatened by sickness and death? Now, our two episodes, Disease and uh, Death. Firstly, Jesus heals a Roman centurion's servant who was sick and at the point of death. And then Jesus interrupts a funeral procession and raises a dead man to life. They're extraordinary events, but notice how personal they are. Notice how particular they are. It's just real stuff, ordinary people, different kinds of people affected by sickness and death. Roman centurion, his servant, is sick. A widow from the town of Nain, burying her dead son. So personal, so real, so direct, so honest. Diseased, death, crying... Such scenes, such experiences close at hand for us all, if not us, someone we love in our family or church family. So, without breaching any confidences, people listening or in church at one of the services today, grieving the death of a child. Perhaps unknown to most people. People grieving over childlessness. Families struggling with complex illnesses with their children. People whose hearts have been broken. People whose hearts don't work, strokes, dementia, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, cancer, depression, psychosis. People who loved gardening but can only experience a garden now if someone takes them in a wheelchair I'm not trying to be emotional here. I'm just describing it as it is. People who climb mountains unable to get out of bed. People who cannot remember their husband or wife's name or remember that they are dead. People waiting for tests, results treatment appointments. Bereavement that never goes away because you were there when they died and you held their hand. I am not, repeat, trying to be emotional or sentimental. I am simply describing what it's like. And it's in facing it. Nobody, nobody in the world, will face this up without Jesus. You'll face it, but to face it up needs Jesus. Jesus came to save us from all of this. The coffin, the grave, the crematorium is not the end. Now, the challenges of these passage to us is that's not the world we live in as Christians, is it? Now, I'm not saying that Jesus does not heal, and he does. There are occasions where I have seen people healed. Of sickness. There are occasions where people are helped or delivered from spiritual evil. But we do not live in the world of Luke 7. We do not live in the world where the normality for a season or a day, as Luke records, where a word, people on the other side of the city, suffering from a terminal illness, are healed. We do not live in a world where people at a funeral, dead men, dead women, sit up and speak and leave the crematorium with their family. We do not live in that world. Now, I wonder, though, if as Christians convicted and convinced by the importance of the forgiveness of sins as the way to receive that world, and convicted to be so careful that we do not give the impression that the world of Luke 7 is the world that we live in, and so I send you as a pastor off to look for things that the Bible does not promise you. So convicted are we not to drift into error that we might just lose the realization and emphasis that this is the world that we will be saved into. You see, these episodes, Jesus' authority over sickness and death and evil and nature, reveal who he is, that he is God. But they also, and this is Luke's emphasis, tell us what he saves us for. The scope of salvation that we receive by forgiveness of sins is a life in eternity, free of sickness and death and tears and fear and disorder in creation and evil. How do we know it's true? Because we read it here and it happened. For that season when Jesus lived in the earth. Now, why the delay? Why the delay? Why is this not yet? And it is not yet. Let me read to you from Revelation chapter 21. I think this will come on the screen. This is the new creation, the not yet. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city in New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Now, these words are famous for They're well-known. Do not sentimentalize them. Have Luke 7 in one half of your mind. The sick man and the dead son. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. For eternity, what happened? For an hour on the earth, Jesus dwelt with them on the earth. And this is what happened. What happened that day at that funeral? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. No death. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. The former things have not yet passed away, but they will. Striking that everything spoken of in Revelation 21, these verses on the screen, is a description of what happened in these two episodes in Luke's Gospel in chapter 7. What happened then? Was the new creation breaking into the earth while Jesus lived on the earth? What will happen when Jesus returns and the dwelling place of God is with humanity in the new creation? Is that magnified a millionfold? Such is the scope of salvation. Now, why the delay? Thank you, Becca, for the slide. Why the delay? Let me ask the most direct questions I can. Why did Jesus allow people to taste this salvation? Why did he allow them to drink the water of life only for a short time? When you think about these people here that he healed and that boy or man, adult, son, who was raised, he died again. (laughs) So why did Jesus do it? Why does he lead us to the water of life? Now, yes, we know the water of life is spiritual, but why does he lead us to the water of life, which is physical, and not allow us to drink of it in full yet? Yes, we have so much now in Christ, that's true. But we do not have this. Why not? Well, Jesus' answer to that, and Luke emphasizes this again and again through his gospel, is that the glorious salvation can only be ours through the forgiveness of our sins. We must come to Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins in order to inherit the glorious salvation of the new creation. That's why Jesus resolved to make speaking the message of forgiveness his priority. That's why the death and resurrection of Jesus is the most important event in Luke's Gospel, because it is only through repentance and faith that our sins can be forgiven. It is only through repentance and faith that our sins can be forgiven. And so that remains the front and center of our message. But might we need to back up that message by saying more about what it is that through repentance and faith for the forgiveness of sins, we are saved for. What a message that is to take to a world at any time. What a message that is to take to the world now as the church unlocks from a lockdown because of the stuff that Jesus ultimately saves us from. Now, Luke's point to us as Christians, have we understood the greatness of salvation in Jesus? Have we understood the greatness of our Savior, Jesus? Now, I want to say just a little bit at this point about where this leaves us as Christians. Clear that there is a not yet, like what is described here in Luke. But what comfort is there for us? Because we have faced reality. We've faced up to the world in which we live and we've faced up to Jesus. What comfort is there for us as we suffer? Many things. One, the church family. Two, a Saviour Jesus. Three, Christian fellowship. Four, the first and greatest answer to prayer, which is peace. Promises like we do not grieve as the world grieves, without hope. We grieve but with hope, prayer, the ability to sing, (laughs) and the fact that we know for certain that there is resurrection to everlasting life in a new creation. And let me add to that list of comforts for the Christian now that you and I have purpose in life. No one else is going to tell this world this stuff apart from us. What a glorious thing we can tell! What a glorious message we have to proclaim. Now, as we conclude, I want us to just focus for a few minutes on one model of faith in these passages the Roman centurion. Striking how, in Luke's account, he figures prominently in the passage. He is a model believer. For someone coming to believe in Jesus for the first time, if you're not a Christian, you can learn from him what it means to be a Christian. He is also a model for those of us who are Christians. Now Luke teaches us that Jesus saves all kinds of people. Often they are outsiders, people we wouldn't expect or consider. And we'll see that in a couple of weeks' time. Jesus' salvation is for all, for anyone who comes to him in repentance and faith, for their forgiveness. But if there is one character, and I thank God for him, in Luke's gospel that is like us, you know how we often say that the people Jesus says are not like us, therefore our churches should be far less homogeneous than they are. Well, this man is like us. He is what one writer describes as an ordinary, sensible, straightforward, hard-working bloke. I think that's helpful. In worldly terms, he is sorted, does his job well, respectable, gets on with stuff. Moreover, he's kind. He values his servant highly, not for the service he gave, but as a person He was concerned for him. He was a caring man. That doesn't make him a model believer, but it doesn't exclude him from salvation. It's not that stuff that makes him saved, but no one is excluded. Now, Luke builds the picture by telling us first what people thought of him. What people thought of him. People think things of us. They think things of you. They think things of me. Verse 3, when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent him to the elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, here's what people thought of him. He is worthy. He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. He is worthy. That is how people thought of this man. Is that what saves him? Are we saved by what people think of us? how fragile that would be for no one truly knows us what matters is what he thought about himself and about jesus that's what makes him a model believer and an example of faith for us it does not matter what other people think about us or say about us whether to flatter us or to undermine us what matters Is that we have a right view of ourselves and a right view of Jesus. So here is a model believer. As you step into faith, or if you've been a Christian for a long time, what did he think of himself? Verse 6 Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy. I am not worthy to be saved. I am not worthy to receive, Jesus, what you can do. And that is the position of saving faith for everyone. It must be, I am not worthy. I am unworthy. And there is an acknowledgement of sin, of uncleanness, of inability, that is shot through with humility. I am not worthy. That's what he thought about himself. What did he think about Jesus? But just say the word. He says, I am a man who says, jump. And the soldier says, how high? Come. And they come. Go. And they go. But the centurion is saying, yes, Jesus, that's what you like. All you need to do is speak a word. But Jesus, you are dealing in the realm of sickness and death and disorder and evil. I just give orders to 100 people. There's a model believer. I am not worthy. Jesus, you can save with a word. I am not worthy. Jesus, you can save. You alone can save. Is that you when you strip away all the clutter? All the clutter of life leads you to a point of decision when you say to the Lord Jesus, I am not worthy and you can save me. Or as a Christian, after many years, you've read a million books, you've been around the houses, you've planted 52 churches, you've led a thousand Bible studies, and yet you still need to be able to say, Jesus, I am not worthy, and you alone can save. Simple, isn't it? It's black and white. It's clear. It's not complicated. It's liberating. It's profound. It's moving. It's inspiring. It's simple. Simple faith. Simple faith what does Jesus think of such simple, clear, trusting faith? Verse 9, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. He marveled at him. What does Jesus think of your simple, simple faith, your ladybird book faith, your ABC faith, the faith that you have as an adult no more profound than the faith that your little child had? Jesus marvels at it. Will they not trust me simply? Will they not remember they are unworthy, but I have lavished them with my grace? Will they not remember that I can do anything? Will they not remember as they battle through life with one appointment after another with another funeral, another diagnosis, with another pandemic, and there'll be something in 2022 and 23 and 24, will they not remember that I will take them out of that world where there will be no sickness, no death, no mourning, no crying, no disorder, no evil? These are just years of passing through. Years where we have the great privilege of telling this gospel, will he not trust me like that man? I am not worthy. You are Jesus. I trust you with all that I am. My whole lot. All my life. And Jesus marveled at such simple and profound faith. Well, I'm going to pray that we will be galvanized as a church to go and tell people this good news. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, what marvelous, marvelous things are in the gospel. A world that is so different from this is what you have saved us for. Help us, Lord, in our proclamation of this message. To be real about the fact that it's only through forgiveness that we inherit these things. Help us to be real that it's not yet. But help us to speak about it even though it's not yet. And appoint people to a world that is altogether wonderful with hope, with confidence, and with renewed zeal and energy and vigour to a world that desperately needs this message. And so do we as Christians. There are folk listening this morning online. who are facing terminal illness. Lord Jesus, may these words from Scripture be of great, great confidence, assurance, and peace for them. At their eternity, is free of all that they face in this life. Fill their hearts with hope and assurance and peace. And when that time comes for all of us as it must, may that be true for each of us too. But for now, gird up our loins. Give us an urgency to go and tell this glorious gospel. For Christ's sake, we pray, and in his name, amen.